Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, Albert, we are back again. It is uh, great to see you here uh, post uh, winter storm with all the, the ice and hail. So uh, I see that you're you're back in upstate. I know you're in the city for a little bit, but uh, how'd you manage there? Did you get uh, snowed in at all? Uh, you know, I tell you, we didn't get a lot of snow. Our, we went to bed Thursday night with just rain coming down. We were like, oh, cool. We avoided the storm. And then overnight it turned to ice. And when we woke up, it was 16 degrees. Everything was thickly coated with ice. And we were like, oh, my God, it's so great. The power's still on. And then, of course, the power went out. And so we had nine hours with the power out. With the temperatures outside at 16, the temperature in the house by the time the heat went back on was 46. Ooh. So it it got cold. We were burned in that firewood. And I sat pretty much all day in front of the fire rereading uh, a little bit of James Joyce. I'm trying, trying to tackle Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man again. And once again, I'm just taking a while. But yeah, it was fun. It was a, it was a day off from work. Um, it, it's a little scary, you know, when people say, oh, okay, the power's out. Just, go, you know, be, be all 19th century, light some candles and have fun. In the real bitter cold, it's, it's serious. Uh, we were kind of iced in. The uh, driveway was super icy. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, all the trees had come really far down. So the power lines were touched and we're like, do you really drive your Jeep through the power line tree thing? You know, like stuff like that. So, you know, there is that slight element of danger. And I was like, originally, oh, I'll take the Jeep out, see what's going on, see what, the, what it all looks. Then I was like, no, I'm not. I'm staying right here in front of the fire. <laughs> so it came back. Uh, everything was fine. But, uh, you know, once again, the, the, a moment to appreciate all these conveniences that we uh, that we take for granted. It just, it was, it was really nice to just wake up Saturday, you know, Saturday morning with the house finally back up to a normal temperature. Definitely, man. Well, I know I would have thrown on like a couple extra ultra heavy flannels there and uh, got, got into it, but I'm glad it, it turned out well for you and everything's safe and, and all good there. So, and oh, I was man. happy to hear your son's all better. So thank yes. goodness that's going good. So you're every, the family's healthy. Family is uh, healthy-ish, you know, <laughs> as good as we can be for pretending to a sick child for about like two weeks there. But yeah, he had like infected everything uh, up in his head, but uh, he's doing much better now. He's sleeping, he's eating. Uh, mom and dad are happy, uh, even though we're very tired, but <laughs> things things are going well now. So thank you well, that for was, that. I do appreciate it. That was it. really good news. So, so I'm really psyched today. We have a, a really distinguished guest. Um, I think our first anthropologist on the show. Um, right on. And, and I, we we came across this guest uh, really through Twitter. I follow various news sources on on uh, on Twitter, including uh, London's uh, The Guardian, and they put out a a link to uh, an article by Anand Pandian, who is an anthropologist anthropologist at Johns Hopkins University. And this uh, article, the headline says, look around you, the way we live explains why we are increasingly polarized. So of course that caught my eye. I read the article and it seemed to dovetail um, quite a bit with a lot of what we talk about here on the show, uh, about, about communication, about the, the challenges that we face, the walls that people put up uh, physically and symbolically in, in their lives. And I sent a message on Twitter to uh, to our guest, and he responded. And I'm very, very excited to have him on the show. It's it's very information rich. There's a lot. He's written a lot of great stuff, and uh, it seems like both of us read different things that we <laughs> that we got from him in various links. So I th I think we'll have a really interesting conversation. So maybe you you'll introduce our guest. Anan Pendian is a professor of anthropology and the chair of the Department of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. He was born in New York City in 1973, a few months after his parents had emigrated to the United States from India, and Anan grew up mostly in Los Angeles. He lives in the city of Baltimore with his wife and two children. Since the 2016 election, he's been working on a new book project tentatively called Hardened, the everyday walls that divide us and how to take them down. Anand, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be here. 
Uh, well, we are very happy to have you on here. We're, we're very excited about your, your work here and uh, all that you've written. And that was a, a really interesting article. And I'm so glad that um, Albert picked it up and brought you on. I'm sure he wants to, to ask you a couple questions here. So I'm going to leave it off to him. Yeah, this, uh, this article was, uh, was rather, rather uh, gratifying, alarming, saddening. I think a lot of people uh, watching what's been happening uh, in the United States feel very frustrated because they feel this polarization happening um, with people really questioning how is it stopped? How is it? How do we address this issue? Um, you know, our podcast isn't political in nature. Uh, the real motivate the motivation originally around the podcast was the um, stories that were in the news at the time that we started about social isolation and the impact that was having on on men's health. And it was before the uh, the pandemic, so it was like perfectly timed because the pandemic hit, and then our social isolation was was even greater. Uh, your article kind of talks about polarization, political pol polarization, but also polarization in general. The way that we've kind of uh, have built a kind of society, it uh, seems uh, that we're we're seeking security, but we're creating great insecurity in the process. That's sort of the long and short of it. I just. Tell us a little bit about how this article came in, into being. Thank you so much, Albert and Adam, for your interest in this work and for inviting me to join you all. It, it really is a privilege, as I said earlier, to get the chance to, to speak to folks outside of academia about the work that, that I do, that, that we do. It's important, I think, for us to be reaching out and, and talking to folks beyond our... <clears throat> customary little circles. And in some ways, I would say that is the heart of this book project that I've been working on really since the 2016 presidential election. Like many people, I was sort of surprised and alarmed that uh, a campaign founded on xenophobia, on the fear of strangers, on alarm over the idea that we were being overrun by people who were different from us was so successful and successful enough that it landed a business tycoon in the White House. And, and um, I felt that I had to sort of try to make sense of this somehow. And I had a year of leave coming up anyway in 2017. I had a different project in mind that I was going to be doing work on, a new book project. And I scrapped it completely. And in the span of a few weeks, totally reimagined what I had in mind and began actually to travel around the country and try to meet people that ordinary people, people from all walks of life, really, in as many different situations as I could manage, and to try to make sense of how we'd gotten here. And in particular, more than anything else, it was the wall that was on my mind, the idea of the the idea of a border wall between the United States and Mexico, trying to make sense of why an idea like that was so appealing to so many people. Uh, trying to make sense in particular of why people time and again would say to me when I spoke to them about this, well, you know, it isn't simply the, uh, it isn't simply the wall. It's that the wall is a metaphor. People would say this to me again and again. What is that? What does that metaphor stand for? What are people uh, saying? Uh, well, what is the appeal of this metaphor, this idea, this imagination of, of a kind of wall around our lives? Why does it resonate so forcefully with so many people? And the more I spoke uh, to people that I met and traveled around the country in doing this research, the more I realized that the very idea of a border wall appeals to many Americans because it resonates, in fact, with the everyday walls and boundaries that they've come to live with in their daily lives. If our society hadn't become one in which people were walling themselves off in ever so many ways on an everyday basis, the idea of a border wall around the country country on the one hand, or the fear of having the country itself unwalled on the other wouldn't resonate so strongly with people. And so the book project that I've been working on is one that tries to make sense of these everyday walls that people live with 
and what it would mean to try to take them down. I have in mind um, the way in which homes have become more and more kind of security conscious. Uh, one out of every six American households now in a residential community is in a gated uh, or secured community. But there's also home alarm systems and all kinds of other ways in which the a kind of security mindset has become a, a kind of organizing principle for the ways that people handle their everyday space. Uh, but it isn't just a question of our home. It also has to do with how we are beyond the space of our homes. The vehicles that we drive are essentially like armored fortresses on the road. SUVs and trucks at this point uh, account for more than 75% of the U.S. Uh, new car, uh, new vehicle automotive market. Now, how do you make sense of that? And it, here it isn't simply a question of comfort or style or convenience. It, there's a real cost to having a situation where people are driving around in these giant, really heavy vehicles that ultimately are actually much more dangerous for people outside the boundaries of, of those enclosed uh, spaces um, because of their weight, because of the way they're built. Um, so again, you have this sort of um, <clears throat> situation where people are moving around in, uh, in, in fortresses of their own. And I try to show as well in this project that it, it can come down to a more personal scale. We think about uh, our own individual bodies and the different ways in which people imagine their own bodies even as fortresses that need to be armored up in one way or another. Uh, and even in uh, our own minds, we can think about walls of the mind. We can think about social media. We can think about partisan media and all the ways in which they stick us once again into partisan bubbles uh, in which we're very unlikely to be exposed to contrary points of view. And the argument that I make in the book overall is that all of these different lines that we've come to live with kind of cascade and build on each other and ultimately give us a situation where America is open and beautiful, and it, and it, and it's it, it, there's a lot of space, and it might look as though uh, we live a very free life, but we are at the same time sort of living within these nested walls that really have divided us from each other in some pretty profound ways, and made it much more difficult for us to take uh, the the claims of strangers more seriously, to meet people we don't know with trust, to believe in narratives and stories that we're unfamiliar with. Uh, all of these things have consequences. And I think ultimately they also have political consequences, which is what I'm trying to show in the project. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's some good stuff right there. Um, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to kind of interject with, with one of these uh, quotes that I, I pulled from that article. Um, and since you spoke about all of the walls um, and the border walls, but um, one, one of the things that you wrote in there was walls at home and on the road, shielding the body from exposure and the mind from uncomfortable ideas. So we have all of this closing off. Um, and you mentioned uh, the fortress mindset um, as well in, in there. Um, but what really kind of jumped out to me was we want to shield ourselves from uncomfortable ideas. Um, we, as a society, I think, you know, a lot of what, what I've, you know, noticed in myself a lot growing up and, you know, to all the way into the point where I'm at today is whenever I don't like something or whenever I am feeling fearful or whenever I'm feeling discomfort, um, I kind of think of that as bad and I don't, I don't want it. Um, there's an aversion um, to that. So, you know, a lot of, you know, what I'm trying to do uh, with myself is try to, you know, foster more openness and, and more acceptance. But I mean, it is not a, um, you know, not, not even close to being like that. That's what's being fostered today. Um, it seems like what's being pushed out in the world, um, you know, is a lot of aversion. It's a lot of closed off. It's a lot of personal security. Uh, you mentioned you spoke to a lot of people. What what have they what have they talked about or discussed that is um, kind of feeding into that um, you know protection from the uncomfortable ideas? That's a great question. Thank you so much for that. I and it it resonates really deeply with me because I'm an anthropologist. Um, so what we do in anthropology essentially is throw ourselves into situations that we don't know very well. 
throw ourselves into circumstances that we're not very familiar with, whether it's uh, in unfamiliar parts of the country in which you live or the city in which you live or distant places very far from, from home, um, we make it a habit of putting ourselves in places where we are quite uncomfortable. We feel a great de degree of discomfort and uncertainty and where we're often at a complete loss as to what's going on. And the job of the anthropologist is to try to somehow make sense of that, try to make your peace with that, uh, try to find a way of living in those circumstances that are very different and to come back with a story as to why they make sense on their own terms without fitting it all back into that very familiar mindset that you got there with. So that um, that that business of, uh, of, uh, of being okay with what is strange, being okay with what is uncomfortable, being okay with what throws you off is absolutely at the heart of what people like me try to do for a living. But one thing in doing that work that I've come to understand is that it isn't like this, this question of, 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 of being open or being comfortable with the unknown. It isn't simply about psychology. It isn't simply about how we're wired on the inside. It isn't simply about what our character is like. Circumstance matters a great deal. Like you can't, you can't connect with strangers in a place that you're not familiar with unless you've got a place to meet them to begin with. So, for example, anthropologists who do their research in India, as I've done for a fair amount of my career, will spend a lot of time in tea stalls, in public gathering places, in places where not only are you likely to be able to kind of sit side by side with strangers, but where it's kind of accepted that the thing that is done is to strike up conversations with people that you might not know that well. You need places like that to be able to nurture that openness to begin with. And so one thing that I've learned through this project in the United States and that I've come to believe quite strongly is that when we lose those places, we lose those opportunities, we lose those occasions for more casual everyday encounter with people that we don't know that well, we become more closed off. We become more suspicious. We become less capable of engaging effectively with people and ideas that we don't know that well. The most concrete way to put this would have to do with the space immediately outside the American home. One of the patterns that uh, the many people around the country have spoken to me about and that I've noticed myself uh, has to do with what it is that people do outside their houses. It used to be the case that one of the prevailing forms of social interaction in uh, American neighborhoods was the front porch, was hanging out on front porches. There's so much written about the front porch as the iconic space of everyday American social life. So much written around this. Uh, and, and since the 1950s, many people have shown the way that the, that the front porch, so right in this piece that you've, you've both read, the front porch has given way first to sort of living room with the rise of air conditioning, with the rise of people sort of getting around in cars instead of on foot, people retreating inside, but then also increasingly retreating to the back deck. And instead of socializing with whomever that might pass by on the front porch, socializing with a more restricted circle of people that they already know that they're invited in uh, to hang out with in the back. And that's a pretty important shift. You're still outside, but you're outside with people that you know already. And what I try to show in this book, what I, what I really have come to feel is that as these everyday occasions for interaction with people and ideas that we don't know that well tend to recede from our daily lives, we lose that capacity that we're talking about. So if we want that capacity to come back into focus in our daily lives, if we want that openness that you're talking about, if we want that comfort with uh, the unknown that you're talking about, if we want that spirit of uh, open-ended engagement with what we might be unfamiliar with, we need to identify the places in which that can happen and we need to build that social infrastructure back into our lives in a in a deeper way to sustain that capacity which is of course a vital one 
I love that phrase, social infrastructure. That is such a powerful phrase. You know, I, as a Manhattan resident, we have sort of this built-in live with others, live with people who are different sort of necessity or reality. I get into my elevator uh, of my building and many people who look differently, different from me, get on that elevator. And it's, you know, sometimes an opportunity to exchange a, a quick hello and talk a little bit. I like I love to talk to people wherever I can find them. I'm I'm definitely on that end of the spectrum of always wanting to go up to strangers and start talking to them. Um, and it, it's kind of built into the New York City lifestyle, a mixing of people. Obviously, that it doesn't solve everything. And there's plenty of, of people talking past each other or not listening to each other in New York. But there is that sort of built in uh, quality to city life that I think is kind of conducive to, to, to mixing. Um, and of course, people who are not in the city think, hey, actually, that's the problem. You know, they see cities, they see violence, they see crime, they see all the, the ills of our society. So people outside the city then see it as, oh, my God, those are those people. We, you know, and of course, there's lots of race things that that get jumbled into uh, into that as well. But just on a personal note here, the social infrastructure thing, you know, you we made jokes before we got on the air about my style, my style uh, feed. One of the things that's come out of this weird social media tool, uh, Instagram, is all these guys are meeting uh, through a, a, a mutual love of style. In particular, our little crowd is denim. And they we've invented this thing. was well, not my invention. It was invented out in LA. But this thing called the denim hang. And that's where guys gather up, meet total strangers for the most part, meet at a store and then they hang out together. So it's like a social, it's created this, a new social infrastructure to a certain degree. And it's hilarious because when I tell, when I tell my family sometimes what I'm doing, they're like, you're meeting with total strangers at a, at a store or at a bar or whatever. Like one of these days we're going to find you, find you chopped up in a freezer somewhere. Like, why are you meeting strangers on the internet? And I just, it's a really interesting uh, thing to see how dramatically different people view that opportunity to meet a stranger. Uh, uh, and I'm just, I'm just curious, how do we, how, how do you think we can make people more comfortable with the idea of showing up and deliberately, like consciously choosing to meet people who are different? How do we encourage that? That's a great question, Albert. And it takes me back to the, to the scene that you described of New York and being around other people, most of whom you don't know. I don't think it ultimately comes down to whether or not you're talking to all those folks, right? I live in the city. I live in Baltimore. It's not like I talk to everyone that I see, right? It isn't about whether you're actively engaged all the time with everyone around you, because like, that would be crazy right? <laughs> to feel like you have to do that. It's about whether or not you feel like you can coexist with people in the same space, whether or not you feel that you can share that space, even if you don't say anything to each other, even if you don't necessarily have to establish any kind of um, common ground or common agreement as to what the world is about and what matters and why, like you can just be with each other. I feel like the more we do that, the more accustomed we are to just being around people we may not know that well, who we may not have that much to do with, but we're just around and that's okay. The softer that line is between familiar and stranger. A stranger isn't simply a stranger because you don't know them. The question isn't like whether or not do you know them. The question is what do you do with the fact that there are people around that you don't know? And my worry about these everyday walls that I began by talking about is that they sharpen that divide between familiar and stranger. The stakes get much higher. If I am moving around the world in a kind of armored vehicle, for example, that's designed to teach me that everything beyond that little space that I'm in is a potential threat, then I think I'm going to learn to be a lot more cautious and suspicious. And the, the kind of sentiment that you're describing, why would you go hang out with those people in front of a store? Um, all that tends to get accelerated and amped up 
because that line has gotten much more radicalized in a sense. I was just thinking that other wall is is also the, the earbuds. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you're we are walking around with other sounds in our ears to the point where we couldn't, we we often don't hear yeah. the sounds around us. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great point. And uh and so we have a there's a trail uh alongside uh, the I basically I I work at Johns Hopkins and I live in a neighborhood that is really close to the university there's a long narrow park called Wyman Park and essentially a stream valley that runs along the campus and essentially between my neighborhood and the campus and so there's a trail that I, I cross to get to work every day and that I can also walk along and and my family were on that trail all the time uh, almost every day especially since the since the pandemic and one thing that that's really struck me is how different it is to walk by people who have earbuds on versus walking by people who don't have them on. It is so profoundly different. And it is an experience that I have every day uh, where you cross people who don't have things plugged into their ears, right? Like, hello, exchange little comments. You talk about boots, you talk about the mud, uh, you talk about dogs, they see me with uh, binoculars, they ask me what I've seen because I've started birding, right? All these really fragmentary little bits of exchange. And um, you know, a couple of times, like I've tried deliberately, right? You say hello to someone who's got earphones on and they're startled because you've shaken them out of whatever other space they were in. And that again is, is evidence of this more radical line between my world and someone else's world. It feels a little threatening. You're thrown off, right? When, when you, when you're forced to kind of unplug. And so, so I've become really interested in intermediate spaces in spaces where like I said earlier, you can be alongside other people without necessarily having to engage with them. And yet just learning to accept on a daily level that that's okay, just for them to be around. Right on. That's a, a good way to, to think about it is like, it's not, you know, a black and white thought. It's not, you're all in at, at once. Um, you have to be the the most engaging person ever, but you can kind of, you know, make, make your space and engage how you want to. But the point is, is that you're comfortable with it and that you're open to engaging whenever it's av available. So I really uh, appreciate that, that thought there. I want to uh, pivot just a little bit um, and kind of talk about money. Uh, Cause I think there is a lot of money behind uh, the inverse of what you're talking about. Uh, in the article, you mentioned that uh, a motion sensor light salesman uh, wants to keep people away the best that they can. Um, and a home security company is, um, you know, like a line in between uh, your family and the uncertain world. Um, and whenever I read that, I, I question popped into my head and said, "What? What exactly are we afraid of? Um, what? What is this? You know, what is this other other side um, that we're trying to to be safe from? Um, or is this just like, are we?" capitalizing and are we monetizing fear? Is that like an actual thing that we are trying to make money from? So I'm kind of curious on the business perspective, um, just as much as the personal, but um, I, I read that and I, I'd just like to, to hear a little bit more about it as well. It is such, it is such a good question. Every one of those barriers that we've come to take for granted is necessary. Every one of those things that we feel that we have to interpose between ourselves and the rest of the world is a commodity, right? And, uh, and, and the mark and markets run on moods. They run on emotions. They run on sentiments. They respond to people's desires and people's desires are, are channeled uh, through the things that they feel, the things that they that they that the, the things that bring joy, of course, on the one hand, but also the things that provoke fear. So all of these sentiments are wired into our economy and propel the way that commerce unfolds. And I think you're absolutely right to to suggest that there are ways in which those emotions can, in fact, be monetized and are being monetized. I think, in some ways, to me, the starkest example of that. This may not really feel like like a wall in the same way, but, but I've been thinking about this, thinking about it this way 
the starkest example of that for me is the individual disposable water bottle. Huh. <laughs> Just get this number in your head if you can. At this point, every year, there are 75 billion disposable water bottles sold in the United States. 75 billion every year. It is almost unfathomable how much of this we go through. And there's a real interesting puzzle here. It is definitely the case that our public water infrastructure, like so much else, has been neglected, has been underfunded, uh, has, especially in, uh, in urban environments, especially for uh, poor people of color. Like there's, there's an awful lot of neglect and pollution and, and contamination that people live with. And it is serious. And there's no, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying isn't meant to diminish that in any way. On the other hand, my family's from India. I have spent years of my adult life doing research in urban and rural India, as well as in Latin America. I'm, I'm acutely familiar with the kinds of, um, uh, I don't know, like, uh, just, just like the disease and grave sense of bodily unwellness that can come from drinking contaminated water, because I have been through it time and time again you know so all of that is there at the same time our water is actually much cleaner th than than the public water in so much of the world maybe most of the world right we drink water straight out of the tap here in baltimore myself my spouse our 13 year old our nine year old like we do it um I don't know what's in there <laughs> there are probably things in there that we ought to be a little cautious about but we do it and yet you know, the industry has fed the American consumer with such a sense of alarm across the board, right? The people are all around the country so suspicious now uh, of that public water, uh, regardless of how well it's treated, purified, chlorinated, whatever. Uh, and, and, and there's a market then to provide this alternative. And and on it goes. And so I think that ultimately, the only way around some of this is to try to figure out how to build trust back into shared infrastructure, right? How do you build trust once again in shared infrastructure as a way of damping down that sense of fear, as a way of damping down that sense of uncertainty, as a way of, uh, in a sense, sort of contracting the market for these personal devices of individual security. Um, it means we've got to take care of our public infrastructure. We need better water. That's absolutely true, right? On the other hand, we also, I think, need to kind of find ways of building trust once again in spaces and resources that we actually share with other people. I think that so much, for example, of uh, the fantasy of the cleanliness of bottled water has to do with the idea that when you crack that seal, no one else's mouth is going to be on it but yours. <laughs> but also, you know, a kind of compliment to that is just this obsession with convenience. You know, I definitely felt it the other day in our in our blackout, um, our power outage, just this convenience that's built into every level of our life. I want it now. I want that book now. I'm going to go to Amazon and order it and ship it. Or if I want it even faster, I'll have it on my phone in, in a minute. Uh, this, in, this convenience thing, of course, is people feeling like they shouldn't need to make sacrifices. And I think that's, that is going to be a, a challenge, I think, to, con to convince people that making small sacrifices is a way of kind of strengthening our hand as a collective uh, society. That, that maybe making certain sacrifices is, is what's needed to keep this infrastructure uh, uh, solid and secure. I mean, I, I take Amtrak all the time. And I, I'm so grateful to not have to drive that two hours up and down a dangerous parkway. We have a famously dangerous road, the Taconic Parkway, uh, that's really got some moments in it that are really scary. And I'm so grateful to be on that, um, on that uh, train. Um, and I'm thinking, hey, if people had access to really great public transit, they wouldn't necessarily need to be in those massive SUVs. But 
you know, that, that slow erosion of public trust. I mean, when I was a kid, I never ever heard a disparaging word about public school. And I have to say, as an adult, I've not heard a positive word about public school in a decade now, or if not 20 years. So I, I think your, your point about rebuilding trust in the social infrastructure is, is going to be is going to be a massive uh, challenge. And just to finish off the article, at the end of the article, you know, just to be positive, you say, uh, calls abound to redesign our personal public spaces for conviviality rather than isolation, commons, parks and open streetscapes, living quarters and resources arranged to encourage social awareness, not solipsism, communication platforms that nurture contrary lines of thought, these spaces can nurture the capacity to live and thrive alongside others, unlike oneself, working against the tendency to reject and retreat, which I think is a nice optimistic way to end the article. I, I wonder how strong that optimism is in you, having now you spent this year on the road uh, uh, in America. Where is your level of optimism? Do you feel like we've turned a corner? Is it possible to turn a corner? Is it we're just beginning to understand the problem. Ironically, I have to say, well, I have to let me preface this by saying that um, I I made it a fair amount through I made it made a made my made my way sort of mostly through this project uh, by 2019, just before the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, I was thrown for a loop with all this, as so many of us were in all kinds of ways. And it took me a long time to try to figure out how this new circumstance sort of fit into this larger argument uh, that I was thinking about and, and, and building in my head. And to be honest, I have to say that the, it, it is the pandemic that ultimately makes me more optimistic, not less optimistic. Right. So, and, I'll, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back to acknowledge that there are things that, that we've encountered, especially in this country, that are really unsettling. The piece that, that you folks reached out about that was in The Guardian is a follow-up to another piece that I published in The Guardian in August of last year, which is part of the same project, which is a piece in which I'm engaged in really sort of avid arguments and debates with a hardcore anti-masker and anti-vaxxer, a small businessman from Southern Michigan, and really trying to look some of those impasses in, in, the, in the face in that piece. And they're serious. And, and in some ways, they might feel almost irresolvable. We, you know, we're, we're stuck in that. Like There's a, there's a sense of being, uh, of being kind of stuck in the impasse that arises when so many people in a society feel like ultimately the best thing they can do is to secure themselves, to secure themselves as individuals, to secure their own families and their own way of life, as opposed to everything else out there. Like all of that is real. And I'm looking that in the face and it is troubling. And, and I want to acknowledge all of that. But at the same time, on the other hand, there's been so many interesting developments in this country over the last 18 months. The, uh, uh, the, the, uh, movements for racial justice and, uh, and and solidarity that erupted all around the country in the wake of the, the murder of George Floyd, really some of the largest uh, protest movements that the country has ever seen. Uh, all the organizing around mutual aid that neighborhoods all around the country have been, um, have been pursuing. Um, as a way of trying to kind of look out for people who are more vulnerable. Right? It happened in our neighborhood. It's been happening in a very important way in our neighborhood in Baltimore and really all around the country in all kinds of ways. But then also larger scale efforts to really reimagine what American societies could and should be like. So people started walking again a lot more than they had been before. During these pandemic months, people started once again hanging out on front porches in all kinds of places in a way that they hadn't before. And planners are beginning to kind of ask questions around how to build more space for that back into our, uh, our cities and, the, and, and even smaller towns and the texture of our daily lives. And so the narrative that I'm developing tracks a lot of that as well. I'm interested in these developments that 
urban planners, social designers, uh, activists, people involved in these different movements, um, their visions for really a different kind of America that is founded more on conviviality, on acceptance, on living with the diversity that we have, rather than sealing ourselves off. I feel like that's real and it's vital and it has a momentum of its own. And so much of, so much of, so much of, how do I put this? Um, the very question of how we come out of the pandemic is entirely tied up with how we adjudicate these two directions. Like how, which way is our society going to go? Is it going to double down on the lines or is it going to grow into these other newer forms of living side by side with others who may well be very different, but whose place we accept? That would be the greatest result, of course, of the pandemic is appreciating all the things about each other that we took for granted just the mere fact of socializing without enormous complexity and concern and worry uh, and just getting back together is going to hopefully be an opportunity for us to really appreciate how much we thrive off of each other's company in some way. And, and hopefully that'll be one of the up, uh, upsides of this, of this very, very difficult period we're all living through. Um, I want to, you sent us some links for further reading, so to speak, uh, in the email exchange you and I had, um, and one of the one of the interviews you did uh, in 2019 was with uh, Johns Hopkins Magazine, and you tell one story about what happened in 2016, and this really this was really uh, upsetting and shocking. But I, I feel like I have to ask you about it. You, you wrote you responded um, to an incident that happened in a swimming pool. Uh, you, uh, you had gone with your, ch your young children to a swimming pool in Baltimore. You said, I felt that I had to figure it out, it being th these tendencies that we've been talking about, be partly because I'm Indian American. My wife and I have two young children. That fall of 2016, they were taking lessons at a swimming facility in North Baltimore. My son came out of the locker room in tears one day that November, saying that there were older kids inside who taunted him by saying the place was so much better when they didn't allow coloreds to enter. Um, yeah, to hear and see that phrase written down in an article in 2019, and to just imagine where those kids, those young adults, got that language and, and the thought that they would think that that's appropriate to, to say to a, young, to a young boy in a locker room. Um, was that after you had already committed to your project, that incident, or was that incident uh, maybe a little bit of a fuel to you to, to want to do this project? Where did that come in? Because it's right around the same time. You're, you're absolutely right, Albert. And, and it was part of this process of, of taking this, this turn for me and realizing this is something that I really had to do because we, there's no getting away from it. Um, I think that that when things get complicated, when things get uh, messy and and awful. We all have the the impulse to to escape, to turn away, uh, to try to sort of focus on other things. And um, maybe a lot of us felt that way with the um, with some of the recent political developments we've seen in this country. And certainly, I can appreciate that impulse uh, among, say, well, you know, we're an Indian American family, right? So you you, you think about um, people who want to say this shouldn't have to be my problem i shouldn't have to deal with this it shouldn't be my job to try to explain why other people who are in positions of privilege uh just aren't caring enough or concerned enough or open-minded enough why should i have to do this work i there's nothing surprise uh, i think i think that people people would often feel that and there's nothing wrong with that uh with, with feeling that way um my experience was that we couldn't get away like uh, you know, here, here, here we are taking our kids to a wealthy suburb in North Baltimore that admittedly uh, happens to host a, uh, a swimming club that um, there was a whites only, Gentiles only, I should say, not only whites only, but Gentiles only pool, as was the case with so many uh, pools in the United States up until a, a certain time. Um, no blacks, no Jews, right? Uh, 
it was it was a pool with that kind of history, but it was very much a part of the everyday landscape of the city that we live in. Um, and to encounter that word in that circumstance, right? And to really like like kind of like roll the word around on on my tongue, like colored is one thing, but then as a as a as an adjective, but then coloreds as a noun, what is coloreds? Right? I remember just thinking like collards, like collards, like collard greens is where it took me. I, I have not heard that word collards as a noun maybe ever until then. Um, but it wasn't an isolated incident, you know, like we, uh, we were taking uh, our kids uh, had been going to school at that time up the road um, from that from that pool a little further up. And and the day after the election, someone someone shot in a big black truck shot by my wife as she was driving the kids to school with a giant confederate flag kind of rippling in the breeze like it was there were these different things that were happening here and around the country that suggested to us that we were in it as much as anyone else and so we felt exposed you know i felt exposed i felt vulnerable to use that word to what was happening in this country and i felt like i had to I had to try to make sense of it i had to try to make sense of how we'd gotten here and what it would mean to try to get somewhere else yeah that's a really in, intense story and i surprised that the the, the anti-semitism along with the, the racism in there too that got me right there and um to kind of go off of what what Albert started here is is the the other articles is the one I read was about the the White Lives Matter um, rally that you attended and I knew like right then and there like there's going to be some anti-Semitism here and there's going to be some things that I'm going to find personally uncomfortable so even before I clicked it I was like okay I'm going to read something that's going to make me angry and I'm going to have to be okay with that because there are people out there that just you know, they they learn how I grew up in a Jewish household and they're just going to instantly hate me because of it. And like, that's that's part of life. Um, going into all of these experiences and and doing that, like that takes a certain amount of grit and um, security in yourself. So I'm just curious as you know, when you go into these situations, when you when you talk about this, when you say that you have to experience it on a personal level, like what do you do mentally and like what do you do like in your life to kind of really give you some balance um so that you can go into these situations with openness um you know kind of as like a more of an academic um way to to go into it because i know just reading that article you know my i started you know <laughs> my hands started getting you know uh, a little tighter and i was like all right like i know this is going to be emotionally charged for me so um, I'm just curious, you know, I, I read an article, you lived that experience, you had the gall to get up, dress yourself and say, I'm going to go into a really, really crazy situation. And I'm going to then again, write about it. So what goes through your head, like before that? And like, how do you mentally prepare yourself? And, and what do you do to kind of be with those kind of feelings and um, situations in life? Oh, you know, it, it, um, it, <sighs> I don't know. I I was scared. You know, I was I was I, I have to admit I was scared. Yeah. I was scared with a lot of this work. I I was scared um I don't know, there's just so much hate. Right? And it and it's and it's legacies of hate. And and it's and and so these these histories for example of anti-semitism and anti-black racism. Um they run so deep in in this country and and it's absolutely essential, as I try to say in this in this article as well, that we think about some of these present day impasses in relation to those histories, because they come back in unexpected ways, right? They come back in ways that at, at, at moments that you don't expect to find them, and 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 we're still reckoning with all of that. Um, so yeah, you know, I was I was scared. Uh, but I think with that, as with everything else that I've done with regard to this project, it was something that I felt like I had to do. I felt like I had to be able to kind of look it in the face, right? As I do in that piece, like, well, you know, what I did was I spent, I spent a day essentially barricaded with white 
nationalists at a rally in Shelbyville, Tennessee. There was the, the protesters were on one side, the white nationalists were on the other. I spent a day kind of penned in with them. Um, and I was asking people point blank, right? Like they were organizing, that was an agitation uh, on, on behalf of the idea of breaking America up into a series of ethnostates, right? different places for different races. And I asked a fair number of people that day, what would you do with me? What would you do with me? Like, what would you do with me? What would you do? What, what would you do with the fact that the reason that I'm here is because my dad's a physician and was invited to come into this country at a time when there weren't enough doctors? We were asked to come here to help take care of Americans. What would you do with us? Right? I got into a lot of interesting conversations, which I write about a bit in that shorter piece and which I write more about in, you know, in the longer chapter that I imagine that piece to be part of. Um, but the thing is this, like I have learned because I have been in all kinds of situations over the course of my adult life as an anthropologist, one thing I have really come to appreciate is that there is a difference between the abstractions that people live with and I don't know who they are on a day-to-day -day scale. And I understand that I appreciate that when when our when our thinking gets 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 clouded and overshadowed more and more by the abstractions, right? Like when you see someone, all you can think is that category. That's really hard. That's really complicated, right? If you're like, boom, other, right? That's that's really hard. And that's potentially really, really violent, right? To be thrown into that category right away. Um, but one thing I've found is that on a day-to-day -day basis, it typically isn't that way. We're used to talking to people. And if you can find a way to kind of talk to people in a way that keeps the guard down, in a way that breaks the ice, so to speak, um, you kind of like you kind of like ride that a bit and and it's okay so the funniest thing about the attending that white nationalist rally was that there was a security line right you had to kind of like show it was on your body and they were confiscating weapons and all kinds of things um and uh the people were, were trying to bring into this space um but we all know the experience of being in a security line because you go to the <laughs> airport so you could like chit chat with people about just having to like wait so long. And I remember very well this welder from Alabama who had this um, Confederate flag draped across his back, almost like a cape, um, was like muttering about how he'd wished he'd brought his, his uh, Kevlar bodysuit and this and that, how he wished he'd had a gun of the kind that one of the security people had. And it was just kind of unsettling but we started commiserating just about how slow the line was and on it went. We, we are much more than the categories that we belong to, right? The categories are real and really terrible things have been done in the name of enforcing the line between people of one kind and people of another. All of that is real. All of that is violent. And horrible things have been done right? In the name of those categories, we are always much more than those categories. We have, we always have many other ways to deal with each other. And, and if you can find those other openings, what you wind up seeing is that there are all these really unexpected forms of commonality um, that you do share with others and, um, and they can make for conversation. They can make for engagement. And I had fascinating engagements that day. It came away unscathed. Wow, that is uh, that is inspiring to say the least. I am I'm glad to to hear that there is humanity in this in this other group. So I, I thank you for doing that work. I don't I don't want to. If I could just jump in, like I like just just for one minute, like I I think that I we have to be careful here, right? Because what I'm trying to say is not like I'm not trying to, in a sense, say that everyone is is human or what we need to do is to see the humanity in people who ultimately are pretty attached to, to really, you know, awful, deadly, violent 
politics, right? It isn't necessarily to redeem themselves as, as human beings or in moral terms, because the politics are dark. The question is, like, the question isn't, isn't, is there humanity in these other people? It's how do we build a society that is ultimately humane? Because people are, in fact, inhuman to each other. And I think the way to do that is to try to, like, find those, those, those threads of commonality and to try to figure out how to kind of grow more space for them in some society to come. Right it is not to say everyone is cool as they are. It's absolutely not to say that. Yeah. Because that can't be the answer. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for for clarifying that. Albert. Yeah. I um, I'm seeing that we're coming up about an hour. Uh, we could obviously just talk forever. I do want to uh, end on a couple of positive notes and just thinking things through. Um, just inspired by this, this conversation, I was thinking, first of all, we need the national take out your earbuds day where you, we just celebrate for one day, no earbuds. We are going to talk to each other. Like maybe we could act, that would actually be helpful to remind people that on that one day that talking to each other is actually a really cool, uh, helpful society, community building, uh, endeavor. And maybe we need to just, you know, everything else has a day. There's literally a day in America celebrating everything. There's probably International Mattress Day if you if you went and, and looked for it. So let's celebrate the uh, Talk to a Stranger Day. I actually, my little corny, I, Adam, you'll have to write like some music for when I come up with my corniest shit. But I, I call strangers friends we haven't made yet. Like play play the play the sappy music. But it's really true. You know, it's just a, a matter of opportunity, time, openness, et cetera, that takes something from being very strange and very alien to being something that we're comfortable with, whether that's a language, a subject that we study, music. I mean, you know, you look at the piece of sheet music to play, go sit down at your piano and it's it's completely intimidating and then you learn what it means and then you can make, you can play a song. So, um Anyway, that's just my just very general uh, thing. We've tried with this podcast very much to, it goes back to the idea that of what you said earlier, that there's no political agenda with this podcast. The whole idea is if you just talk and encourage people to talk, it builds bridges. It makes people more comfortable with talking. And I'm, I've really loved that aspect of, uh, of the podcast. Um, I'm hoping down the line you might consider an anthropological study of the denim hang. Uh, we could go into the, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on there that I'd love to parse out. But um, anyway, I just want to thank you uh, for being open to accepting an invitation over Twitter to come to talk to two guys on a Sunday morning. You're super smart. Um, I learned we had some other connections of um, people that I work with in the music field who are connected down there at Peabody, which is part of Johns Hopkins. And I hope we'll get to meet in person next, certainly next time I come down to Baltimore, I'm going to, I'm going to look you up and uh, either crash, crash over and meet your family or take you out for a meal. But anyway, uh, I encourage everybody. I will include some links in, um, in our feed so that people can read, read your articles. Uh, one last question I have really is just like, how far off do you think is this book you've been working on? Is it are you pretty far along? Is it still, I mean, it seems like a subject you could research for the next 50 years. Uh, thank you so much, Albert. Um, uh, you know what? Um, I've, I've read most of it. Um, actually, the, the project is represented by a literary agent and we're actually looking for a publisher. So if there are any editors, <laughs> any publishers <laughs> out there that are interested potentially in picking up this project, that's where we are. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to, 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 to find a home for it relatively soon. Yeah. Very cool. Well, good, good luck to the agent, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to, to throw it back to you. Anon, is there any uh, last, last parting words you want to share with our audience today? Um, I just, I just want to say that I, I really appreciate the spirit of, of what you folks are doing. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I, I'm fascinated by the, by the denim hang and their anthropologists <laughs> who actually write on clothing in particular, and maybe we can, we can connect around that and I can throw some, some references your way. Uh, but, but the denim hang aside, um, the, 
what you're saying about 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 talking and about the importance of just being comfortable talking about what can happen when people become more comfortable with that talking listening like that that feeling of connectedness all that matters a great deal i don't think that I don't know. Our, our family came to the United States from India in the 1970s, and we wouldn't have had a place here unless people were were willing to take us in as strangers. And uh, I think the the best of this country does depend on that, on that, on that willingness, on that spirit. And I just want to say I really appreciate the uh, the mood and the vibe and the spirit of, of what you're doing. Thank you. Right on. Well, you are very welcome, and we are very happy to have you on the guest. So. I'm going to wrap it up here. This has been another episode of the Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Anand Pandian. Thank you for listening.